Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. I've entitled my sermon this morning, The, the Curse of False Advertising. Um, so um, I'm going to read for us from Mark chapter 11 in a moment. But it's a very interesting passage. It's the passage where Jesus curses the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple and he... And he um, drives out a lot of people from the temple and then later on they walk past the fig tree again and they found that the fig tree has been withered. And what makes this miracle so interesting is it's, it's seemingly the only destructive miracle that Jesus does in all of the Gospels. All of Jesus' other miracles are restorative or healing miracles and this is the one miracle that destroys something. And, and many people really struggle with that. Many Christians even, many, uh, even struggle with that. Um, so we're going to look at that and, you know, what does it mean? Uh, what does it tell us? Uh, what can we learn uh, from, from this passage? So let's read Mark 11 from verse 12. It says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing that in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, writ- uh, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for, In prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may may forgive you your sins. And Lord God, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your word is life-giving. Lord, that your word is encouraging, Lord, that it's correcting, Lord that it's instructive, Lord, that it helps us make sense of life and that it gives us hope where we are hopeless. And we just come to you, Lord, Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord, that that you will really plant the seed of the word in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit, Lord. We pray that you'll minister your word to each of our hearts in the very area that we need it, Lord. Thank you that you know each of our hearts, Lord. And you know exactly what we need. 
And we pray, Lord, that you'll come and apply the word to, to our hearts in the area of our need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, like I said, this is account of the cursing of the fig trees, the only destructive miracle seemingly in the Gospels. And um, a lot of people, a lot of you know, commentary writers and you know, famous people actually have a big problem with this passage. Uh, and and uh, you know, very confused about it. Bertrand Russell, um, who was a famous atheist, not very um, positive towards Christianity, he said, you know, this is just vindictive fury by Jesus. You know, there's this innocent fig tree, and it's not even the season for figs. And Jesus comes, and because you know he's hungry, and there are no figs on the tree, he just curses this innocent fig tree. You know, and he's not impressed with Jesus at all because of that. Um, and even some you know Christian commentators, there's this one guy, uh, W. Manson. He writes, "It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper." For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. You know? Jesus curses the fig tree, but I mean, Mark clearly says it's not even the season for figs. So many people read this and are confused, you know, especially people, you know, who are green. You know? Why would Jesus curse a fig tree? You know, and I, I believe Christians should. Um, respect uh, the environment. God, the Bible says that God will destroy those who destroy the earth. God created creation. Okay, so we should, and we are supposed to rule over creation as His vice regents, you know, as His representatives. So we're supposed to take care of, of creation. So, um, you know, we should be sensitive to those to those things, and we should take care of creation and, and help to take care of creation. You know why? Why this story? Why the cursing of the fig tree, you know? It's easy to find this confusing. So let me just see if I can explain it. Um, I don't think Jesus cursed the fig tree because he was hangry. You guys know hangry? When you're so hungry that you get angry, okay? Uh, Some of you know it very well. (laughs) Some of you have a spouse that gets angry, you know? And, and, And when you see them getting a bit, you know, sort of you know, upset and, you know, touchy and so on, right through the refrigerator, you, you heat up some leftovers and you, you give it to them, you know, to, to, to keep the peace. <laughs> but I don't believe Jesus was just angry. He wasn't, you know, angry and now he was upset. And like this commentator says, you know, in ill temper, cursed the, the fig tree. There's a lot more going on there um, than that. Uh, the, the first thing... Um, that we should realize, and, and you know, Christian commentators have, have realized this from the earliest, I mean, the very earliest commentary written on the, the gospel says this, that what's going on here is this is an enacted parable. Okay? Mark does something very interesting, uh, which, is, which is very much unique to Mark. Um, he, he often uses what, what um, scholars call a sandwich construction. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this when, when you read Mark, but he'll start one story, and then in the middle he'll jump in with a seemingly different story, and then he'll finish the first story. I mean, just a, a famous example is where Jairus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, comes and says, my daughter is sick, you know, please come and pray for her. And then as Jesus is walking, this woman with a flow of blood comes, and he touches the hem of his garment gets healed, and, he's, and, and he sort of turns around and says, who touched me, and that kind of thing, and, the, and that whole scene plays off. And then they 
you know, when that's finished, they, they move on again to, to Jairus' daughter. And that scene plays out. And Mark does this intentionally because he wants the two stories to mutually interpret one another. So he has the two pieces of bread and then he has the ham in between, you know, sort of metaphorically. And you've got to eat them together. You know, you cannot, you know, take the two pieces of bread separately and eat them and then the ham separately. It, 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 you'll miss the, the full effect. You know, eat the ham sandwich, you know, don't, don't separate them, okay? So we're going we're gonna to eat this, you know, passage like a ham sandwich, you know, together like I think um, Mark intended it. So, so here, it's up there on the screen, there we go. Here, um, in the first couple of verses, in the first couple of verses, um, you, you have sort of the, the, the first slice of bread where, where um, Mark tells us about the cursing of the fig tree. And then from verse 15 onwards, you have the temple and Jesus engaging with the guys in the temple and actually cleansing the temple. Um, and then in the next part, you, you have again the fig tree. And then Jesus interprets it. Interprets the, the victory in a sense. Um, so he has this interesting construction, and you have to see that to be able to fully appreciate what's going on here. Um, and second thing I want you to notice, um, and, and I'm going to sort of use this as, as my outline, just these three words I want you to, to notice. Firstly, he talks about the fact that there's no fruit on the fig tree. The fig tree is there, but there's no fruit on it. Okay? And then um, they go into the temple and... and, and uh, this whole issue in the temple, this whole scene in the temple plays out. And then when Jesus starts talking about it, after they the next morning see the fig tree withered, he talks about faith. That there's the issue of faith underlying all of this. And then right at the end, he talks about forgiveness. So fruit, faith, and forgiveness. And what I want you to notice about um, all three of them is that, that all three of them are very closely and intimately related to prayer. Because when he's in the temple, he says... My house will be a house of prayer for the nations. And then he says, um, and um, just see, so uh, when you, whatever you ask for in prayer, so when he relates the fruit to prayer, he relates the faith to prayer, and then he says, and when you stand um, praying and you hold anything against someone, um, forgive them. So it relates to forgiveness to prayer as well. So prayer is a, is a, is a very important um, aspect of what Jesus is doing. So, so we're going to look at prayer and fruit, prayer and faith, prayer and forgiveness uh, from this passage. Okay, so let me just um, see here. Jesus knew the Old Testament very well. We know that because when he's tempted in the desert... He doesn't like pull out, you know, let me pull out my scroll of the Old Testament and, and, and quote scripture. He just, off, off the top of his head, starts quoting scripture at the devil. Um, and then the devil tries to quote scripture back. You know, the devil can also know scripture. He just doesn't know how to apply it properly. But <laughs> he can also do scriptural interpretation or misinterpretation in, in, in that case. So Jesus knows scripture very well. And, and Jesus comes to this fig tree. He, he's walking along. He's, he's hungry. And he sees a fig tree in leaf. And he goes to see if he can find anything to eat on it. And there's no fruit. And then he curses the fig tree. And, and Jesus must have known um, this scripture in Micah uh, 7. It says, What a misery is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. 
There, there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. And, and that sort of explains Jesus' Jesus's experience here. Now, what's happening here is, you know, to understand it, you, uh, you know, I have to read up a little bit about figs and how figs work and uh, uh, fig trees grow. They actually grow in, in three stages. Three, you, know, you can see it almost as four stages. The, the fig harvest, the full fig harvest is in around August, October. Of the, of the northern hemisphere, and directly after the harvest, it starts shooting out little buds, okay? And those buds stay on the fig tree all throughout the northern hemisphere winter, and then in, in March, April, you know, sort of early March, um, those buds start to grow into little sort of knobs. Uh, there's a specific word for it in the Hebrew. Uh, it's called pagim in, in the Hebrew, early figs, and they're about the size of an of a, of a olive, okay? They're green, um, and, and they're not fully grown figs. They look a little bit like this. And they start already developing in, in around March. Now, we know that Jesus was in Jerusalem. The time that he was there was around April. Now, towards the end of March, then after these little, you know, sort of pre-figs, if you can call it that, or unripe figs, start forming these little knobs forming, then the leaves start growing, okay? And then after that, around June, July, the figs start ripening. Some, some ripen a little earlier, so sometimes if you're lucky, you'll get like an early, you know, fig on the tree, but, but usually only around June, July, and definitely by the end of August, then it'll be fully ripe, and you can start with a, with a harvest. So you first these these knobs, then you get the leaves, and then you get the mature figs. And these, these little knobs, weren't, they weren't mature or ripe figs, but they, they were edible. And often, we, uh, they, they didn't taste as good and as sweet as a, as a proper fig. But you could eat them, and, they, and, and, and if you were hungry, you, know, they, you could actually get nourishment from them. Um, and when Jesus went to the fig tree, because the knobs come first and then the leaves, and this was a fig tree in leaf, he at least expected to have these, in Hebrew, pagim, or... or little knobs there that he could eat. He wasn't expecting fully grown fruit, but he was expecting at least that. But you know what the surprise was? When he got there, not even those little knobs were there. In other words, this fig tree through its leaves, you know, was advertising, you know, I have maybe not, you know, ripe figs yet, but I at least have the potential for figs and at least little knobs you know, something, you know, you can at least expect something to eat. And clearly Jesus did expect something to eat. He saw the, the leaves and expected at least there would be something to eat. And that's why he went to the fig tree. Okay? Um, and then he comes there and experiences a classic case of false advertising. Because even though the leaves advertise that there should be something to eat, maybe not something ripe, but at least something to eat, or at least the potential of figs, Jesus discovers there's nothing. Instead of revealing, you know, that there's, there's at least the potential for fruit or at least the beginnings of fruit, this, these, these leaves on, on this fig tree are actually covering up its unfruitfulness. And it, this inevitably makes you think of Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Remember what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? After they'd sinned against God, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. You know? And, and so often, 
we use things that are a pretense of fruitfulness to cover up our unfruitfulness. Just like Adam and Eve, just like the fig tree, and as we're going to see, just like the Jewish temple in Jesus' day. Um, and, and when we go to the temple, and, and, and here you can clearly start to see how the fig tree is actually symbolic of the temple. And, and, and often, as we saw in Micah um, 7, and as we see, for instance, in Jeremiah 8 verse 13, um, Israel is representing the Old Testament as a vine or a fig tree. Okay? So it says, I will take away their harvest, declared the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So Israel represented as a fig tree. It says there will be no figs and the leaves will wither as well. Now there's a fig tree will be cursed because of its unfruitfulness. And then Jesus goes to the temple and he finds the temple in a state. Now how it worked in those days is, you know, if you had to travel far to bring an, an offering, sometimes it was difficult. You know, you had to carry the thing. So it was easier to sort of bring money and then buy an offering there. But how it usually worked is at the Mount of Olives, they had like a market where they would sell, you know, sheep, lambs, pigeons, whatever stuff, and, and, and do the money changing because the, the temple worked on a temple shekel. So it had a specific coin because they could only use coins that didn't have an image on it or an inscription because they would consider it idolatry. So was a specific Tyrian uh, shekel that they used that was the closest thing to the temple shekel. So if you want to pay the temple tax, you had to do money exchanging. Now, the problem was that around the festivals, and this was around the Feast of Passover, they brought that whole market into the the temple precinct to make it easier to sell. And the problem was they were were charging exchange rates and exorbitant amounts. They They were like cheating people, and especially poor people, you know, who... Um, didn't have the money, you know, to bring sacrifices. You know, they had to like pay extra, you know, to get to get these stuff. And and Jesus was not very happy about that. And he comes into the temple. Let me just show you a picture. There's a few more fig trees and stuff. But I just want to show you a picture of the temple. This is the temple, or a model of the temple in Herod's day. So you had the temple of Solomon that Solomon built. It was destroyed with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Babylonian captivity. Then they came back and the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. Then Herod the Great, who was the the king who lived during Jesus' time, although he wasn't a, a true Jew, he, he, was, he started in around 20 before Christ and started building this temple. And it was only fully finished in, in the 60s, 62 to 64. And it was a massive structure. Um, it was really huge. And it was really spectacular. So you had this, this outside court over here, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. So it has four courts. Let me just show you this picture. Just to give you an idea of how big this was, that little r- black rectangle there is a football field. Okay, just for scale. This was a massive temple. Hundreds of acres big on the Temple Mount. Okay, And then on the outside here, you had the, the court of the Gentiles. Then on the inside, you had like the court of, 
of women, so Israelite women were allowed to go in there. Gentiles were only allowed in the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed into the temple proper. And then in there you had the, the court of Israel where only male Israelites were allowed in. And then you had the holy place, which is this building there where, where only priests were allowed to enter into. Okay. So, and, and there were actually inscriptions up in, in, in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, I think, that said, you know, if you're a foreigner, don't pass this point you know, you, you'll, you'll be um, responsible for, for your, your own death if you do that, okay? So the, the, the Gentiles were only allowed into that outer court. If they wanted to come and pray, and God, God's, God's heart for Israel was always that they would be a nation that would draw other nations in, a light to the other nations, have a heart for the other nations, draw them in and show them how to worship the Lord and then invite them into that worship of the Lord. But here you have a situation where this market is moved from that Mount of Olives and, and now it's all over here in the, in, the, in the outer court, in the court of the Gentiles. They're just cluttering this place and it's become this bizarre and they're selling animals and it's noise and so on. And now there's no more place for the Gentiles to pray, no more place for the Gentiles to seek God. Not only are they doing extortion, you know, turning it into a den of robbers by, you know, selling everything at a, you know, exorbitant profits, but they're crowding out the nations, the very thing that God wanted them to do, to draw in. They were crowding them out. There was no more, they were crowding out prayer and they were crowding out the nations. And Jesus was saying, just like this fig tree is unfruitful, and is not bearing the fruit, at least the beginnings of the fruit that should be there. So the temple also is unfruitful and the people and the prayer that it should be bearing as fruit is not there. It's being crowded out by greed and commercialism. So the, the point of this, this story is not that there may be no buying and selling in, 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 the, in the church. I mean, some people have interpreted it that way. That misses the point. The point is there should be fruit. And the things in our lives... The other things in our life should not crowd out the fruit in our lives. Now, Jesus, of, of course, you know, after they see the, the fig tree having withered the next day, he applies that to our lives individually. So firstly, he applies it to Israel corporately, and we should apply it to ourselves corporately, but then he also applies it to, our, ourselves, to us individually. Now, here's the question. Do we have things in our lives, both corporately and individually, that, that is crowding out? the fruit that God wants us to bear. Are there things in your life that are crowding out the people God wants you to reach and God wants to love through you? Are there things in your life that are crowding out the people that God wants to invite into Him, into worshiping Him and to, into relationship with Him because there are just too, too many things in your life that don't belong there? Are there th so many things in your life that it's crowding out your prayer life, that there's no space for prayer in your life? No space for prayer in our life. If there is, then we should take a hard look at ourselves and say, aren't we becoming like the temple in Jesus' day? Aren't we becoming like that unfruitful fig tree? Because there's lots of activity, there's lots of buying and selling, there's lots of scurrying here and there. There's lots of leaves, but there's no fruit. 
And, 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 and the problem here is that we make the things of God just a means to an end. You see, it says that Jesus would not allow anyone to walk through temple precinct or carry their merchandise through the temple precinct. Because it was so big and it was sort of in, you know, strategically placed in Jerusalem, the easiest way to get from one side of the city to the other is through the temple precinct. Otherwise, you had to walk like the long way around. So, you know, people just sort of carried their stuff and used the temple as a shortcut. And, and the problem with that was all this activity, which was not focused on God, but focused on self, was crowding out the things of God, crowding out prayer, crowding out the people who actually want to seek God. And so often we allow that in our lives. And I think the first challenge that this passage gives to us is, I mean, it says that Jesus saw the fig tree at a distance. He saw the fig tree in leaf. And the leaves were advertising fruit, or at least fruitfulness. But when he came there, there was nothing. And what convicts me is, you know, does my life look fruitful, leafy, from a distance? But when you come up close, there's actually nothing. And I think there are some areas in my life, as probably there are some areas in your life, where our lives are full of leaves, but devoid of fruit. What's the solution to that? What's the solution to that? The solution is prayer by faith, praying by faith, not increasing the activity. That would be just increasing the, the leaves. Are we going to bring more sacrifice? Are we going to do more rituals? Are we going to have more activity, more busy work, more leaves? That, that doesn't solve the problem. The, the, the solution is not on the outside. We shouldn't do just behavior modifications like the like the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the Lord did, we should allow our hearts to be changed. And, and that's when Jesus goes on and he talks about faith. And he says, um, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Let me just read that passage. Let me just... So he says, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says uh, will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And, and Jesus gives us a few um, powerful teachings on faith here. The, the first, one of the first things that he, that he talks about is the object of faith. So, Jesus says, have faith in God. In other words, this shows us that the most important thing about our faith is the object of our faith. Have faith in God. In, in Matthew's gospel, the parallel passage says, even if you have faith like a mustard seed, small, tiny faith, as long as it's small faith in a big God, it's actually better than big faith in a small God. Of course, the best of all is big faith in a big God. <laughs> okay? But even small faith in a big God is better than big faith in a small God. And the object, our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith. And God should be the object of our faith. And we often get this wrong. We often get this wrong. Um, let me see if I can draw you a little picture here. 
you've probably heard of the so-called prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. And, and one of the things that the word of faith movement, unfortunately, have got wrong is that it changes the object of faith. Okay, how, do, how does it do that? Um, it says, it, it basically turns, at least in some of its forms, I'm sure not everyone um, you know, who, who, who follows the prosperity gospel gets this wrong, but, but in, its, in its original form, this is how it works. It says, faith is a force. And, and it says, that scripture actually says, and, and, it, and literally, if you translate it literally, it does say that. It says, have the faith of God. Actually, it doesn't say have the faith of God. It says have faith of God. It uses the genitive there. Um, but what, the mistake they make is they think that you can translate something literally and, and then you know, get the sense of it. You know, obviously, the people who translated that um, in, in that sense didn't understand. I mean, even if you, if you translate something in, um, from English to Afrikaans, for instance, those are two languages I can speak. You know, if you translate too literally, then often you lose the sense of it. You know? If, if someone, if, if I visit my friend and, and he says to me, what's up? And I say, the roof. You know, I, I've missed the point. <laughs> Literally what that means is have faith in God. And you can actually see that it means that. Because it says later on, you know, if you believe without doubting, then it will be done for you. If it was your faith itself moving the mountain, if it was your faith itself producing the fruit, then it wouldn't have said, it will be done for you. It will say, you will have done it. But it says clearly, it will be done for you. By whom? By God. So, here's the thing. Um, if you see yourself as here, uh, and, and the, the mountain as here, the, the, the word faith movement says, you must have you know, faith um, as a force. You know, like, like Star Wars? The force be with you, you know? <laughs> that kind of thing. Faith is a force, and your faith is a power that accomplishes. In other words, faith is magic. That's basically what it says. Your faith moves the mountain. And you must have, effectively, faith in faith. Okay? What this text, actually, if you read it carefully, says, no, you must have faith in God. And then God moves the mountain. It will be done for you. So here's the terrible thing that, that we sometimes do in this. is we, we, To use commercial language, we remove God as the middleman. We cut out the middleman and we think our faith can accomplish by itself what only God can accomplish. Have you ever encountered that? I'm sure, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've encountered teachings like that. And I'm sure you've encountered Christians who encourage you to do that. But unless we have faith in God, our faith is not a Christian faith. And our faith will not move mountains because only God can move mountains. Now, the thing here, the, the moving mountains in, in, in Jesus' time, in, in, in the rabbinic literature and in, in Jewish so on, it was... It was a metaphor for, for, for the impossible. Okay? But there's something specifically impossible here that, that this is referring to. Because it says, um, whenever you pray, you know, whatever you ask for in prayer, and, and the ask there is, 
and I'm sorry to get a little bit technical here, it's, it's uh, in Greek middle voice. In, in English and Afrikaans and Zulu and so on, most monologues only have an active and a passive voice. Active voice is when the, the subject is performing um, the action, you know, I'm, I throw the ball. The, the passive voice is when the subject is receiving the action. I am being thrown <laughs> like a ball. <laughs> That's passive voice. But in Greek, you have a middle voice. And, and it's the subject performs the action, but they do it for themselves and to themselves. So, so there's a reflexive, um, self-reflexive um, thing there. So, so literally what it says in the Greek, and it's because you don't have a middle voice in English or Afrikaans, you, it's difficult to translate. How do you translate that? Okay? So literally what it says is... Um, if you pray, if you ask for anything for yourself, if you ask anything for yourself. Now remember, it's in the context of the fig tree that is unfruitful and is cursed, and the temple that is unfruitful and will be destroyed. So he's saying, if you have an area of unfruitfulness in your life, because people look at this and say, oh, blank check, you know, God is giving me a blank check, yeah, I can ask for anything, you know. Oh, Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes-Benz? Okay. <laughs> we think that, but that, what it's saying is, if you ask not, it's not a blank check to ask for anything, but it is a blank check to ask anything for yourself. In other words, if there's any area of fruit, unfruitfulness in your life, God says, I'm giving you a blank check. If you ask for unfruitfulness to be removed from your life, that is a prayer I will always answer. If you are full of leaves but don't have any fruit, God says, and you, if you pray about that, I'll answer it. If you have an area in your life where you're being unfruitful, where you're not bearing fruit, maybe an area of anger, where, you, where, where you're struggling with your temper and, you, and, you, and, and it's causing you to be unfruitful, or maybe an area of fear, I remember I used to struggle terribly with, with fear. I, I, I had serious fear of man. I didn't do what, I was do what I'm doing now. I couldn't stand in front of people and speak. Uh, I, was just, I, w I would stutter, literally stutter. I, and I would struggle to get out my words because I was just so afraid of people. And I couldn't bear the fruit. Because of that, I couldn't bear the fruit that God intended for me to bear in my life. I was just too afraid. And I remember at Stellenbosch University one, one evening, you know, praying about it. Actually, I prayed about it quite a, quite a lot, but I, I remember specifically one evening I went to the hockey fields, you know, just at the foot of the, of the mountain, and I was praying about it and saying, God, please help me. Please help me. I'm so, I'm, I'm so struggling with this fear. Please take it away. Please remove it from my heart. And I, and I remember, you know, through a process how God, you know, like one says, brought in his perfect love because perfect love casts out fear. And we removed that unfruitfulness of fear from my life so that I could much more easily and much more boldly speak to people and, and uh, bear the fruit that God intended for me. And so often we get so used to that fear or that anger or that unforgiveness or that whatever it is and we think we'll never get rid of it. And so often we try so much and we grit our teeth and in our own strength we want to get rid of it. But the problem is it's a mountain. It's an impossibility. You, 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 you try hard and you, you, you fight hard against it in your own strength and you get rid of it for a little while, but then it comes back to vengeance. Until you admit that it's a mountain that you cannot move, that God needs to move it for you. It needs to be done for you. And then when we're in that humility, 
and dependence on God, childlike dependence on God, come and say, God, I bring this area of unfruitfulness to you. I'm not bearing fruit in this area of my life because of this fear, because of this unforgiveness, or whatever it is. God, please remove it from me. And then he does what we cannot do. He removes the mountain that's blocking our path to fruitfulness. And he makes us in our unfruitfulness with just our leaves to actually bear fruit, to start budding and growing. And, and it was interesting yesterday evening before we you know, put the kids to bed, we actually prayed about this. And I read this passage to them and I said to them, you know, what area of unfruitfulness do you have in, my li- in your life that you want to bring to God? And all three of them said, disobedience. <laughs> 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 it was so cute, you know, Kirsten's 11, Justin's 8, and, and Ethan is 3. And all of them just praying and saying, God, please help me to be more obedient, you know, <laughs> to bear the fruit of obedience in my life. But that's the, that's the beautiful, you know, childlike prayer that God wants all of us to pray and say, God, I cannot do this by myself. I cannot. Okay, I'm, I'm, I don't have much time left, so let me just... Um, mention this um, there's also the opposite of, of, of that is mentioned doubt and, and, and it seems like Jesus almost mentions a kind of a, a, a mathematical equation here you know faith minus doubt plus asking equals receiving okay and, and what he basically just says is, is um, faith is the opposite of doubt you know when you In other words, faith is not a force. Faith is trust in God. You either trust someone because you know that they are true and they are capable. They have have the character and the integrity to follow through on their promises. They have the the, the competence to actually do what they've promised. And they care enough for you to actually... Um, fulfill their promises Um, and it's a relational trust in God instead of doubting as as opposed to doubting him in our hearts and 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 when you want to trust someone you don't focus so much on the promise that they make as on them as you focus on them how, how, do you, how do you get to know and trust someone and grow in relationship with them? Do you, do you focus on your conversation with them or do you focus on them and getting to know them? You, you focus on them, of course. If we want to remove doubt from our hearts and we want to grow in our trust in the Lord, we must focus on the Lord even more than we focus on what He has promised. But then we must also put, trust what He has promised uh, and believe that what He has said He will do. Let me, let me just close with this. Fruit, not leaves. Faith, not doubt or force, um, forgiveness. The things that frustrate us the most and frustrate other people about us the most are the areas of unfruitfulness in our lives. If you think about the people that are closest to you where you can sort of see beyond the leaves, you know the things that frustrate you most about them is is the areas where they are being unfruitful where there's something block, blocking their fruitfulness. You know, whether it's a, a, a parent or a child or a spouse or whatever. And what God is saying here is, on the one hand, through f- faith and prayer, I will give, 
I will do in your life what you cannot do for yourself. Okay? But then he says, effectively by talking about forgiveness, that it won't happen immediately in your life or in the life of the people around you. So there are going to be things about other people that are going to continue to frustrate you. It's not going to be like, boom, you know, everything's sorted and everyone's sorted out. No more frustrating, no more, you know, annoying unfruitfulness. And then you're going to be tempted, okay, when that thing is still there and it continues to be there maybe for a while, you're going to be tempted to hold it against that person. And then Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against someone, if in their area of unfruitfulness they sin against you and you eat that bad fruit or you get a mouthful of leaves (laughs) instead of fruit, what must you do? You must forgive. You must forgive. And once again, pray and forgive as long as you need to forgive. Why? So that the Father in heaven can forgive you because guess what? Just like the person, your spouse or your child or whoever they are, your friend, is struggling with their area of unfruitfulness and you can hold it against them. So you're struggling with your area of unfruitfulness and God can hold it against you. We don't, we're not going to get this right all at once. It's not going to be like you know, all the mountains in our lives removed, all the unfruitfulness in our lives removed, all in one shot. It's going to take some time. And in that time, we're going to have to forgive one another and we're going to have to forgive ourselves and God's going to have to forgive us. And the good news is, He does. You see, when Jesus, this this is often called Jesus cleansing the temple, but really what it was was not Jesus cleansing the temple, but Jesus condemning the temple and saying, like this, like I cursed this fig tree, and this fig tree was destroyed, so the temple will also be destroyed. Why? Because there's going to be a new temple. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. A temple not made with human hands. And Jesus became not only the temple, but the sacrifice in the temple. Sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So we no longer have to carry merchandise through the temple or buy sacrifices, pigeons or lambs or whatever, exchange money. Because Jesus made the sacrifice to end all sacrifices so that even though he gives us the power to overcome our unfruitfulness by faith, when we don't do it, he can still forgive us. And we can still be his children. We can still be his people. So that he can be patient with us as we overcome our unfruitfulness, as the mountains in our lives are moved. Isn't that amazing? Don't we serve an amazing God who is willing to give His life so that He doesn't have to take ours? But think about this. Think about this. My unfruitfulness And my covering it up with my leaves cost Jesus his life. Do I really want to tolerate the unfruitfulness that cost Jesus his life in my life any longer than I really have to? Do I really want to? Of course not. Of course not. So my question to you this morning is, what is that area of unfruitfulness in your life 
that, what is that mountain in your life that, you, that you've been <laughs> battling against but that you just cannot budge and that you need God to move? What is that mountain of unfruitfulness? What are the leaves maybe that you're using to cover it that you need to just say, God, just, you know, look beyond the leaves and show me. Help me to see beyond the leaves what really needs to happen. Just, just close your eyes for a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit. Just say, Holy Spirit, I ask you in Jesus' name, what, what, is, what is the mountain you want to move in my life? What is the unfruitfulness you want to address in my life right now? Just ask him and, and expect him to answer. Just close your eyes and, and, and think. Maybe he's already convicted you. Maybe he's already shown you what the mountain of unfruitfulness is in your life that, that he wants to deal with right now. If he has, I just want you to bring it before him. Usually you won't have to look too hard for this issue, for this area of unfruitfulness, because it's, it's pretty much in your face. It frustrates you. It makes your life difficult. For some of us, it, it might be fear or anger, like I said. For some of us, it might be selfishness. For some of us, it might be unteachability. For some of us, it might be pride. Just those pride of those leaves, you know, that we use to cover up ourselves cover up what God wants to expose and deal with. We cover it up so we don't have to deal with it. For some of you, it might just be like for my kids, disobedience. <laughs> just plain disobedience. God, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it and I don't want to listen to you. For some of us, it might be prayerlessness. The fact that like the temple courts, we've crowded out prayer from our lives. We've, we've packed, metaphorically speaking, our temple courts so full of activity and commercial industry that, um, that we've crowded out prayer. Because actually we, we don't have faith in God, we have faith in ourselves. We think, you know, with it, I've got enough talent, with enough time, and enough money, I can make it happen by myself. Whatever it is, just, just bring it before the Lord and say, God, please curse this unfruitfulness in my life and replace it with fruitfulness. The fruitfulness that comes from your new temple and the presence of your Holy Spirit inside of me. Just in your own words. And just remember, you know, if, you, if we can tolerate something, we won't change it. If we can live with it, we probably won't change it. And maybe you need to ask the Lord and just say, God, bring me to a place where I don't want to tolerate this anymore, where I'm sick and tired of it. As we remain in an attitude of prayer, 
I want to ask, is there, if there's anyone here this morning, you, your life maybe has been like the, the Jewish temple in Jesus' day, full of activity, full of rituals and sacrifices, but they're all things that you do for God, and you've never allowed, or you've never really received what God has done for you. Jesus giving his life as the new temple, as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. And maybe you've been trying to do religion or Christianity like the Pharisees were doing it in their own strength and in their own effort. And maybe this morning you realize, I cannot do it that way. This mountain of sin is too big for me to move or even climb. I need Jesus to remove it. If there's anyone like that and you, you'd like me to pray with you, can you just quickly put up your hand and then I can pray with you afterwards. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else say, any please, I need you to pray with me. Just put up your hand if that's you. Anyone, thank you. Okay, we'll pray afterwards. And then, if you, you are a Christian and... and um, you prayed now and you said, God, I bring this area of unfruitfulness to you and I want you to, to remove it. But, but you, you're pretty sort of despondent and hopeless. And, and maybe you just need help. You need, just need someone to pray with you and for you. Um, then, then I want you to also just come forward because we're going to pray with you. Um, and then, then you can maybe just, sometimes it's, it's good when you just agree with someone and just say, I just... I want to just bring this area and I want you to agree with me that God will give me victory in that area. So if you have any area of unfruitfulness in your life that you did pray about now, but that you would just want to, someone to agree with you, I just want you to come forward and just stand right there in, the, uh, in front. Whether it's fear or anxiety or anger or, you know, thoughts, um, you know, immoral thoughts or, or just getting down on yourself. Just come stand over here. Okay, we're going to pray in a moment. I, I just sense something. I just sense, I'm, I'm going to close in a moment, but I just sense the Holy Spirit that doesn't want us to forget this moment. The Holy Spirit wants you to go home or even now, um, you know, before we go home, he wants you to write down in your Bible or somewhere this area of unfruitfulness that you brought before him. So that you will not forget it, but so that you can. And so he can give you. So, so that you can praise him. See that. I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you that you are a mountain moving God. And that we can trust in you. And that we can bring our mountains to you and say, God, please remove them. Please allow us to, to not just be covered in leaves, but to bear fruit to the glory of your name. And thank you that you forgive us for so many times that we don't bear fruit. But thank you that, that, that we can trust you now, that you will change that in our lives. And I just pray, Lord, for new hope, new faith, new encouragement for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.